Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Fired up about church? Fired up about football? Okay, that volume was about the same for both. That's, I guess that's acceptable. I'm fired up about football, I'll tell you. I'm looking forward to it this afternoon. Um, promise to have you out of here in time for kickoff. Yes, I know it's the 9.30 service. Um, I'm actually really excited about this topic we're going to be talking about this morning and about something that I will announce uh, at the end and where we're going to go with that. Um, and, but I'm going to keep you in suspense and not talk about it right, right yet. We're going to start with a quote from the philosopher Ted Lasso, who said, with the exception of the wit and wisdom of Calvin and Hobbes, not much lasts forever. <laughs> now, I don't know about his theology, but it did make me think about a uh, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that I saw last week as school was starting and kids were going back to school. Calvin and Hobbes were standing out in front of their house on their sidewalk, and Calvin said, here I am waiting for the bus, 11 more years to go, then college, then maybe grad school, and then I work until I die. <laughs> now, we smile or we chuckle or we think that's cute, unless it hits a little too close to home. Because when we look at the world around us, it is too easy to see people that literally live life going through the motions. And, and, and the older you get, the more likely that that is to happen. And, and part of the reason is because it is so easy for us to get focused on the diversions or, or the things that might distract us from the big picture. And, and we get focused on our next conquest or our next title, our next raise, our next job, our next promotion, our next purchase, our next relationship. And, and that becomes the thing that consumes our thinking until we achieve it and we realize it does not provide lasting fulfillment. And then we're tempted either to turn to despair or to change our focus to the next thing, right? And, and so, so this morning, we're going to talk about this. We're going we're to jump into what it looks like to invest our lives in that which will outlive us. By the way, welcome to those of you that are online. We're thrilled that you're here this morning and watching with us. Uh, shout out to my people, Tanner and Tyler and Brooke, um, students there at colleges that let me know they'd be watching this morning. They're away at college, and uh, they are normally here with us when they're not at school. And welcome to all of you that are online who maybe I don't know that are watching, so we're glad you're here. Um, but when we talk about this, the way that we tend to get focused on different things that, that grab our, our attention, I'm reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote from a sermon that became a book. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're, we are, Lewis wrote, half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at sea. And I think too often we settle for mud pies in our life. And I, and I say that to those of you that have come into a relationship with Christ and to those of you that haven't. 
because it is so easy to get distracted by the immediate desires and, and things that we feel like we need. I'm going to do something a little odd for new life. We don't do things like this very often. It will feel odd for only a moment, but it won't really be odd, I promise. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to actually close your eyes and bow your heads, not to pray or do anything weird, but I'm just going to ask a one-question poll, and I want to see you raise your hands, not yet, to, to, to one question. And the question is going to be this. I'm going to say, I'm going to ask, have you come to a point in your life where you have, by an act of faith, placed your trust in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Put differently, according to that description of Christianity, have you become a Christian at some point in your life? That's what I'm going to ask you. And if your answer is no, then just don't raise your hand. That's fine. All right. Out of respect for everybody else, close your eyes and literally physically bow your head right now. Everyone. Okay? Raise your hand right now if you have come into a relationship with Christ and you are a Christian. All right. Hands down. Heads up, eyes open. I didn't even say Simon Says. Very good, people. Thank you. I told you it wouldn't be weird. Now, here's why we did that. Because I want to speak first to those of you that did not raise your hands. I know I speak for the church when I say we are thrilled that you are here. And if you're watching online and you wouldn't have raised your hand, we are thrilled that you're here. We hope that you will keep coming back. Because these questions about is Jesus who he claimed to be are the most important questions we will ever ask. It, literally the most important questions we can ask. If there is an eternity that we all face and our only way to spend eternity with God is through Jesus Christ, if that's true, we need to want to know that more than anything else in life. And it's not a religious preference question. It's not a philosophical question. It's a historical question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he actually rise from the dead? Because if he did, it changes everything. But for those of you who didn't raise your hands, I want to warn you that this morning you're going to get a little peek behind the curtain because most of what I'm going to talk about this morning is focused toward those of us that have raised our hand. I want to challenge us this morning. If you raised your hand Really, what we're talking about this morning is for you. And, and for those of you that didn't raise your hand, I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll keep coming back. But really, this is for that second group. Um, as we talk about living what, for what God would have us live for and caring about that which God cares about the most. So let me take a moment and pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is no accident that any one of us is here. Uh, the specific people that you wanted to be here, however we decided to come this morning, are here, and we are grateful for that. So, Lord, would you speak to our hearts through your word, through your, the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Brett asked me to speak, usually it's part of a series, and he says, here's the part in the series I want you to speak on. That's easy. Um, when it's the summer guests series or whatever, he says, speak on whatever you want. And for a variety of reasons, I would say about this week's sermon that what I'm speaking on, uh, I believe God absolutely led me to speak on. And, and I think there are other things that would confirm that. We'll get back to that in a second. And I'm so excited because what I initially planned to speak on when he asked me was suffering. That's what I thought would be a good topic because our family has been through a brutal, brutal summer. 
But as it turns out, Chris, who was here last week, spoke on suffering, and I thought, okay, well, that's probably not the right topic, and started seeking God again, and he, I would say, led to this topic, and it's one that I am absolutely passionate about. It might be the topic I am most passionate about speaking on, and I'm so excited about it. But when I say we've had a rough summer, I don't mean me and Carrie personally or our kids necessarily, but... So many people around us have been going through so much stuff. My sister on Memorial Day, my sister-in-law's, yeah, Carrie's sister's husband at 51 had a heart attack and died. Two weeks later, very good friends of the family, uh, one of their sons was murdered. Both of those deaths, the families asked me if I would perform the funeral. I've now done three funerals in my life. Two of them were within a two-week span. And then there were a number of things after that that we went through that were really challenging, all the while trying to minister to the first two families and and, uh, my sister-in-law and her kids trying to wrestle with what it looks like to continue living without Brian around. And then... Partway through the summer, we found out that someone in our family very close to us that we love very, very much um, and, 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 and are super close to uh, was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer and she's going to be in a fight for her life. And, and, and there are actually a few other things that I could share. And it feels like this summer for the Dennis family has been getting kicked in the stomach only to come up for be able to breathe a little bit and starting to get our bearings again and then getting kicked in the stomach again and then getting our bearings. And through it all, God has been good. Through it all, he has been present and, and, but it's been difficult. And here's why I share that. Because through it all, the thing that I am so wildly, powerfully aware of right now is that life is short and it's unexpected Life is short and it's unexpected. And what we invest our lives in matters immensely, especially if there's an eternity. If there's an eternity that we're going to spend with God or without God, how we live now and what we live for and what we pour into our life matters like crazy because life is so short. And I know there are people out there that have been through difficult summers and gone through difficult things, deaths of family members and other things as well. I know it. But what we invest our life in matters. In Matthew, well, let me say this first. There was a student, uh, some of you have heard me talk when I've been here before about the Sunday night group I lead for high school students, mostly from Westfield High School. By the way, if you're a high school student and you're interested, find me afterwards but because we're getting ready to start up next week. Um, but one of the students that was super involved, a football player at Westfield that I got to know really well, we'd have these great conversations about the Lord and, and he wanted to grow in his faith and it was fantastic. But he would keep coming back to the question of, What's my purpose? What am I here for? What's the point? And I said, I, I don't understand why we keep coming back to this. I don't know if I ever said that to him, but that's what I always felt. Because if you raised your hand this morning, I am going to tell you right now what the purpose of your life is. Right now. We're going to solve it. Um, if you raised your hand, the purpose of your life, I believe, is obviously to walk with God and know him forever. But what we're supposed to do is Matthew 28. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. 
And remember, I am always with you to the end of the age. In terms of who we are as people, mission one is for us to love Christ and try to become more the people he wants us to be. But with regard with our purpose, what we're supposed to be doing with our life, it's go into all the world and make disciples. I think this translation says, of all nations. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to quit your job tomorrow and come to Exponential and become a church planter, but maybe in a room this size, it does mean that for one of you or two of you. Doesn't mean you have to sell all your belongings and move to some remote nation and be a missionary, but maybe in a room this size, maybe it does mean that. But when Jesus said, it's one of the last things he said when he was on earth, when he said, go into all the world and make disciples, he meant go into your classroom if you're a student, you're a teacher, or you work at a school and make disciples. Go to work on Monday morning in your accounting office or to your law firm or to wherever it is you go to work and make disciples. Whatever it is that God has given you to do, go and make disciples. Because it is mission critical for us not to see ourselves, if you're an accountant, not to see yourself as an accountant who happens to be a Christian, but rather as a Christian, as someone that's going to go and make disciples in the world of accounting, in the sphere of influence that God has given you. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are to be, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are God's representatives. If you raise your hand, you are a representative of Christ right now. It's true of you. So the question, of course, is how are we doing as ambassadors? And, And in terms of the church universal, not just new life, I fear that we are not doing well, at least in America. I think there are places in the world where the gospel is flourishing and going forward and God is doing amazing things. And, 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 and when I speak, it says at the beginning, Patrick Dennis, fill-in guy, and that's by design. I do that because I want you all to be aware that usually I'm out there sitting with you, that, that I'm part of this church body. But in a fit of lunacy a couple of years ago, the leadership team asked me to join and be on the leadership team. And, so, and I said yes, and somehow this whole crazy thing came to pass. And now I sit in meetings sometimes and we meet and I get to hear different metrics. And there are so many encouraging things that are happening in this church, so many ways God is moving, so many ways he's doing things in people's lives, and it's so encouraging. But let me tell you about a metric that's not encouraging, and it's a big one. I don't, know if the, I don't know if the staff team and the leadership team would call it the most significant. It's got to be up there, though, and it's the number of people that are coming to faith in Christ. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2020, in 2020, uh, we started out the year like gangbusters. God was really moving in people's lives. People were coming to faith. We were on a really good tra- trajectory, and then COVID hit. And the wheels came off everything, not just at New Life, but churches all over the place. How do we minister in the midst of this mess, right? Um, And by the end of 2020, we saw 60 people get baptized. Now, there's probably people that came to faith that aren't reflected in those numbers, and baptism and salvation, not exactly the same thing. But when someone becomes a Christian, they should get baptized. And so we like to say, if a person gets baptized, we we are pretty confident that that, or we're confident that that person has come to faith in Christ. So 60 baptisms in 2020. 2021, 49. So far through two-thirds of this year, uh, 24. 
I don't know if you can see the line chart there, the, the direction of the bar graph, but it's not good. And I think part of the reason it's not good is because we are not engaging the outside world in the way God would have us do it. We're just not. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Udvar Hazy and saw Top Gun 2 on the giant IMAX screen and loved it, right? Very cool. I, I love Top Gun 1, so of course I was going to love Top... Any of you that liked Top Gun 1 probably loved Top Gun 2, and anyone that didn't really care about Top Gun 1 probably didn't care about the... That's fine, whatever. Um, but... In Top Gun 1, there was this great scene where Maverick, the Tom Cruise character, was circling above a dogfight that was happening, happening below him. And because of a traumatic experience he had had early in the film, he's circling but not getting involved in the dogfight. And the, 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 the other naval avi- aviators that are in the dogfight are saying, engage, Maverick, engage. And he's circling around and he can't do it. He won't do it. And the people on the aircraft carrier that are watching this all happen via radar are are yelling into the microphone, engage, Maverick, engage, and he wouldn't engage. Actually, he did eventually. But when he was circling around, he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew how important it was, and he wouldn't do it. And I fear that's what's happening in the church right now, that we as believers are not engaging the outside world. And here's the thing. If you raised your hand this morning, there is nothing that God wants you to do that you can't do better in heaven than you can do here, except for helping others come to know Christ. Nothing else. We're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to obey God. We're supposed to not sin. We're supposed to do all that stuff. All that stuff's going to be easy in heaven, right? The only thing that we can do better on earth than we could do in heaven is help introduce other people to the life-changing truth of the gospel. And when we don't engage, it's like, it's like there's a man sitting on the pool deck right here in his $19.99 folding nylon chair that he bought at Dick's Sporting Goods, and he's, he's, he's going to be in that chair for 47 hours on a Saturday morning at a swim meet. And you're thinking, no, he can't be in a chair for 47 hours on a Saturday morning at a swim meet. And I say to you, you have never been to a swim meet. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And not only is he there for 47 hours on that Saturday morning, for 46 hours and 30 seconds of that morning, he's not going to care about anything. It's the 30 seconds his kid is going to swim out of the 47 hours that he's sitting there. And that guy might be dying inside. He might know there's something broken, or he might not. He might know that his life is messed up, or he might not. He might have a sense that this world is messed up, that there's something not right, or he might not. But the person right next to him in his $19.99 folding chair that's going to be there for 47 hours has the answer. And this thirsty guy over here, whether he knows he's thirsty or not, is sitting next to a guy with water who's not sharing it with him. So why don't we engage? I wrote down at least seven possible answers or parts to answers. Number one, subconsciously we think we're going to let the pros do it. We're going to let Brett up here on the stage or Brennan or Pat or John with the students. We're going to let those people that are paid to do it and we're going to invite people to church. That's great, by the way. That's great. But what are we doing if that's our our whole plan? We're, We're assuming that just getting them to church is going to win the day. 
Well, okay, it's a good thing, but is that going to get us where we want to be? Two, sometimes we don't engage because of fear. We care what people think. Every one of us in here does, whether we admit it or not. And we, we fear the fact that we might get rejected. We fear that they might ridicule us. We fear that it might not be politically correct. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to, Christ, but to God but through the Father. Not sure how politically correct that is. And, and we let our culture influence us a little bit, but we get nervous. Or we, get, we nerv- get nervous because we care about this person and we care about what they think of us. And are they going to think that this is weird or wrong or mean? And, and so we let our fear keep us from saying stuff. A third reason we might not engage is just straight-up disobedience. We know what God has called us to do. We've read Matthew 28 before. We might even have it memorized. A fourth reason we don't engage is it may be, and this might be partially true and partially an excuse, we don't know how. We really don't know how to talk about our faith, and we get nervous about that. Paul didn't always know what he was going to say. There's a passage where he says something like, I was not with you in persuasive words of men, but in demonstration of power and the the Holy Spirit. Um, And and there was one time where Paul said, I didn't know what to say. I prayed that the Holy Spirit would give me words. Yes, training is important. But if you just can share your story, who you were, how you came to know Christ, and the difference it's made, that's half the battle right there. But we're going to deal with the training thing a little bit more in just a minute. Five, here's a big one. Maybe there are some of us in here who have heard the gospel and realized I am sinful and I need forgiveness and that Jesus died on the cross for me and that's great news and he rose on the third day and that's great and I need that. And we've turned to Christ and we said I will follow Christ with my life, and we've given our lives to Christ, and yet we've never dealt with the reality of hell. We've never really thought about how hard a doctrine this is. That there's a real hell, and whatever you think about hell, there is an eternity we will, eternity we will all face where we will either be with God or not be with God. And that is going to be true for every person. And if you really, really, really believe that there's a hell that people can go to, and you're not willing to have the courage or guts to engage spiritually your friends that don't know Christ, I would ask if you really love them at all. A sixth reason, spiritual warfare. Satan would love for you to do just about anything other than to engage your friends in spiritual conversations. He would love it. Even good things, even church things. He would love it. Seven, I think it's possible that there are some of us here that get complacent in our faith. Maybe we've shared our faith a lot. But right now we're in a season where, you know, the kids' sports, we've got a lot going on. Man, work is really demanding right now. Or I've got to solve this other problem. And we can get complacent and forget Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations. So what does it look like to engage? I'm going to give you a brief picture of that. We're going to look in the uh, the book of Acts and see a, a model, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, I think, Paul engaging people in Athens. So I'm going to read this, and we're going to make some observations from it. Um, There it is. Good. Here we go. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? A different translation translates that idol babbler. What's this idol babbler trying to say? For some reason, that always entertains me. Um... Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent all their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Listen here to how bold Paul gets right now. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, And this is where he gets really bold. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now the results, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some joined him and believed, including Dionysius and the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with them. We're gonna make six quick, quick observations about this. Number one, Paul cared about others. And when I say that, I mean he cared about their deepest need. He was walking through the city and he saw all these idols that people were worshiping and it said he was greatly, deeply distressed. We see things going on in this world world that pull people away from the Lord and the question has to be asked, does it deeply distress us? We remember Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, saying he saw the people and he felt compassion for them because they were like, they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Because when Jesus looked at people, he saw them according to their greatest need. He didn't look at someone and say, and come to some conclusion about them based on what kind of car they drive. Or, or the clothes they wear, or the neighborhood they live in, or the, their title, or their position, or their amount of power, or their amount of money, or what kind of beach house they have. And yet it's so tempting for us to look at people and look at all the surface things and come to a conclusion about them and not see them as God sees them, as someone that knows him or someone that doesn't. Paul cared about people. 
And so let me ask you very specifically and pointedly, if you raised your hand this morning, how often, seriously, answer this in your own heart, how often do you pray for those people that you know, that God has put in your life who don't know him? How often do you intentionally initiate spiritual conversations with people that don't know him? When's the last time you actually shared your faith and said, this is the gospel. This is what it means to have a relationship with God. And maybe the most pointed question of all, when's the last time you actually gave a non-Christian an opportunity to make a decision about Christ? Where you said, are you ready to make this decision to trust Christ today? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I did that a lot in my past. I haven't done it so recently. I've gotten away from it. Some of you are thinking, I don't have any idea how to do that. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's interesting news to me that I should be doing that, right? But I will tell you, even when I ask myself those questions, they're challenging. But that's why we're here. That's it. My friend Tyler, who I know is watching online, is a talented baseball player. He's playing baseball down at JMU, and and he's making great strides as a pitcher, and I can't wait to watch him play this year. And God has given him those abilities to, to pitch, and he should pursue them, and he should try to be as good as he possibly can to maximize the talent God has given him and his passions, the things he loves. But God has made him to be a light to that baseball team in the midst of trying to be a great pitcher. And the same thing is true for us. What are you passionate about? What do you enjoy? Where has God planted you? What sphere of influence has God given you? Second observation, Paul cared about others. Second observation, Paul went onto their turf. One of the reasons I love the end zone is because we're trying to always have this be a place that the community sees as their turf. I had a friend when uh, a month or two after this place opened, no, actually it might have been more than that, it might have been a year. He said, I bet I'm in your church more than you are with all the practices my kids have up here. I love that. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it might be more than a million people now that have come through this building to do stuff in here um, since it's been opened. I I think it's got to be, it's probably well over that number, but whatever it is, it's definitely hundreds of thousands. So we can make this feel like it's the community's turf so they don't have to feel like they're going onto foreign land, right, to to visit a church. By the way, if one of your spheres of influence is at a gym, if you are a gym person, join this gym. Why? So you can bring the people you work out with here and just coming in the door opens the possibility for spiritual conversations. I'm not doing that to sell more gym memberships. I promise. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that because this building is an opportunity. But we see in verse 17, Paul went onto their turf. He went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So what is your sphere of influence? Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe your neighborhood is tight and you're always having cookouts and you're always doing stuff together. Maybe, like me, it's when when my kids were young, I was so involved in in SYA, um, in the one sport in the fall, one sport in the summer, one sport in the spring, and I knew so many parents that were my kids' age, that was really a sphere of influence that God had given me. Maybe it's your cubicle or, or, or your work. Maybe you own a company and you've never seriously thought, I have an opportunity to be a light in my company. I would suggest you have more than an opportunity. It, it's God has put you there to be light. 
So where is your sphere of influence? Third observation, Paul in, got involved. He involved himself in their interests. Verse 18, uh, it talks about how they were always coming together to talk about different ideas, and he jumped into the fray. So that's what you're into. One of the coolest things that ever happened evangelistically was the year that I made the insane decision to get involved in a fantasy basketball league, an NBA league. I was still playing a lot of pickup basketball, had a lot of college students involved in my life, and so a lot of guys I was playing basketball with all the time, I said, hey, let's do a fantasy basketball league. Spiritually speaking, amazing. Practically speaking, awful, horrible, don't ever do it. But because fantasy football is cool, I'm in like a league right now and I can't wait to see how my team does this afternoon, but there's 17 games in a year and I only have to think a little bit about my lineup because they're only playing one time a week, right? NBA fantasy is absurd because they're playing every single night 82 different times and you've got to constantly be on it. But there were like eight guys in the league uh, six were non-Christians, or maybe, actually there were, I think there were 10, I forget the exact numbers, this was a while ago, but there were, whatever it was, if, I think it was eight that were non-Christians, six of them became Christians by, within about a year. Because we were doing something we all enjoyed together, and that led us to hanging out, and that led us to talking a lot, and that led us going out to get dinner sometimes, and that led, and just being together, being involved in something with the people that you love and care about, the things they're interested in, can lead to spiritual conversations. Fourth observation, Paul worked to find common ground with them. Verse 22, I see you are religious in every respect. When I was passing through and observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. There were all these altars to all these different gods, and the people of Athens had made one and said, okay, in case there's a God we don't know of, we're going to make an altar to him. And Paul says, Paul says, well, let me tell you about that thing that you made an altar to over here, the unknown God. I don't have time to get more in depth than that, but observation five, Paul spoke the truth. There's a famous quote that floats around out there that says, preach the gospel all the time and if necessary, use words. I don't love that quote, to be honest with you. Should we love the people God has put in our life? Yes. Should we love them sacrificially? Yes. Should we find ways to serve them? Yes. Are our actions really, really important? Yes. So the idea behind the quote is fine. But we can't share the gospel without words. It's a non-starter. The gospel is a propositional truth. We need to understand that we are desperately sinful. We need forgiveness from Christ and only his death, burial, and resurrection and our putting our trust in that gives us the opportunity to know God and be forgiven and be right with God. But Paul spoke. He gave this great little mini sermon in verses 24 through 31, but he spoke in their own language. You get this one part? He said, as even of your, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He's quoting their people. And, and so there are Christians that say, oh man, I only listen to Christian music. And if that's you and that's a conviction, that's completely fine. No judgment whatsoever. But music is the poetry of our day. It reflects what our culture is thinking. And there are so many secular songs that reflect the brokenness of people in this sense that something is not right and it gives us an opportunity to speak right into it. We should know the music. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to love it, but we should know the music that that our friends are listening to. It's just one example of speaking their language. Final observation is Paul saw mixed results. Verse 32, some began to ridicule him. Some said, we'd like to hear you again. However, some people joined him and believed. And when we 
Men and women, when we have the courage to step out in faith because we love someone enough to want to tell them the truth, when we do that, when we show that kind of courage and initiate that kind of conversation, sometimes we're going to be rejected. Sometimes people aren't going to like it. Sometimes it might feel bad. But sometimes people are going to say, I want to hear you again. If Paul got rejected, yeah, it's going to happen to us too, okay? Sometimes people are going to come to faith. And I'm telling you right now, men and women, people are do- God is doing something at New Life right now. Because when I was thinking about speaking on suffering and not this topic and then realized I couldn't do it, I felt like God gave me a vision for this sermon, but not just this sermon, for a four-week series of events that are going to start Tuesday night, October the 18th, and I want to invite every one of you. And we're going to do four events in a row. And I'm not even going to tell you what we're doing because it's going to be different each week. We're doing it here. I'm leading it, but a lot of other people will be in and out and up front. Um, And we're calling it Engage. Because what we've done this morning is my introduction. It's not a whole sermon. It's the introduction. And I'm so excited about these next these four weeks starting October 18th. And we want you to be here. If you are discipling someone, bring them. If you've never shared your faith and don't even know what that would look like, come. If you've done it in the past, you have something to offer. We want you to be there. If you've never thought about what it means to live intentionally, we want you to be there. If, we've never, if, you've never, if you think, I don't know how to share my faith, definitely come. If you think about your neighborhood or your sphere of influence and say, I I can't begin to get my head around how to make a difference in that community. We're talking about making an investment that outlives you. And I'm asking, challenging every one of you in here that raised your hand to come on Tuesday night, October 18th for the first one and see what you think because I think you'll come back for week two. Just four weeks, hour and a half each night. But if this morning's sermon is the introduction to that, then be there. Now, Here's why I say God is doing something. Because you have these cards on your chair. You know what? I had nothing to do with these. Because the same day, roughly, that I decided to speak on this and to ask Pat and Brett if we could do this four-week thing, the same day, Pat, te- Pat Ferguson texted and said, hey, let's get some brainstorming together about what we could do to light a fire under our church to really, I don't think he used the word, engage our community. But there are multiple streams of thought that are coming together in ways that tell me God is up to something, and he wants you to have the privilege of being a part of it. Don't miss this. The privilege. There is no greater privilege you can have than the opportunity to help introduce someone else to Christ and change their eternity. No greater privilege. And if you've never thought about yourself in that way, please come for the four weeks starting Tuesday. Please, it's a month away, so you have time to change your schedule. I really need to wrap up. But... You could tell I'm excited about this. Tom is going to be up and talk a little bit about, about this more, but this is talking about your sphere of influence. Who are the people that God has put in your life that you can be praying for? And, and, and uh, as I wrap up, I'm particularly scared or nervous that there's some of you that have raised your hand at the beginning that are thinking this isn't really for me. And I would push back, say, if you raise your hand, this is for you, what we talked about. But let's pray and ask God to move in our church. But when I say that, I don't mean among the professionals. I mean among us, that we would see 
people start coming to Christ in crazy numbers. Why? Because we take the challenge of going into all the world and making disciples of all men seriously. Let me pray for us. Lord God, there are people dying apart from you who need you. And life is so short. Oh Lord, would you remind us of that? Would you remind us of how badly people need you? Would you remind us that hell is real? Would you help us see people as you saw people, Lord, as Jesus, like sheep without a shepherd, distressed and downcast? Would you help us see people, our friends, according to their greatest need, whether they know you or not, not according to some of the worldly ways we might see people? Change our hearts. Give us a burden and a passion for those people that don't know you. Lord, for those people that are here that raise their hands that are maybe new to all this kind of thinking, Lord, would you help them rearrange their schedules to come Tuesday night, October 18th? Would you help light a fire in them to learn what it means to live lives that will outlive them, to invest in things that will outlive them, other people? Lord, for those people that have been believers for a while, light a fire in their hearts to share the gospel to initiate spiritual conversations, to learn just to ask good questions. Lord, we need you to show up in a powerful way if we're to make a difference in this community. Why? Because there are thirsty people and you have given us the water. We're like beggars we know, Lord, that can show other beggars where to find food. So we ask you to move powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen.